daily digest of the who, what, and why of Waterloo Region. Welcome to Kitchener Today on City News 570. today on City News 570 with your guest host Fazia Mazhar. I know it is cloudy today, but let us enjoy the day before we are hit by the freezing rain tomorrow. I don't know about you, but I truly despise freezing rain more than any other weather gifts. I'll take snow over freezing rain just about any day. So yesterday we observed the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. It is observed annually on March 21st, the day the police in Sharpville, South Africa, opened fire and killed 69 people at a peaceful demonstration against the apartheid, apartheid pass laws in 1960. In 1979, the General, General Assembly adopted a program of activities to be undertaken during the second half of the decade for action to combat racism and racial discrimination. On that occasion, the General Assembly decided that a week of solidarity with the peoples struggling against racism and racial discrimination beginning on March 21st would be organized annually in all UN states. Since then, The apartheid system in South Africa has been dis- dismantled. Racist laws and practices have been abolished in many countries. Yet, still, in all regions, too many individuals, communities, and societies suffer from the injustice and stigma that racism brings. In Canada, this date reminds us that although progress has been made, indigenous people, racialized communities, and religious minorities in Canada continue to face racism and discrimination every day. My first guest today, MPP Laura Mae Lindo, the opposition critic for anti-racism. And Laura needs no introduction. As Kitchener Center MPP, Laura Mae Lindo's bill on racial equity in education titled The Racial Equity in Education Systems has passed the second reading in Ontario's legislature. Laura is also calling for an equity audit across all Ontario public schools after Ontario's education minister ordered a review of how staff at John Sweeney Catholic Elementary School in Kitchener handled a situation where police were called on a four-year-old black student. Welcome, Laura. Hello, thanks for having me. You are very welcome. I'm so glad you made time for us on such a short notice. Thank you, Laura, and thank you for all your work as well. Oh, thank you so much. And really congratulations on building an all-party consensus on this important piece of proposed legislation. It's not easy. No, it's not. And it was near unanimous support. Um, but I think what was really, really important um, was to listen to how the government uh, was, was speaking about the bill. Um, because they're also dealing with uh, examples of racism in schools in their neighborhoods, in their ridings. Um, and to have both parliamentary assistance for the Minister of Education and for the Minister of Post-Secondary um, speak in such powerful ways to the importance of the bill was really, really humbling. That is amazing. That's wonderful. I hope that this near unanimous support turns into unanimous support for you in no time. Well, listen, it's sitting in committee, so the next step would be for the government 
to um, call it at committee to get community input, um, which is a really important piece of it, right, to make sure that community knows, the understands what mm-hmm. kinds of changes we're asking for in the bill. Um, and it's an, also an opportunity for us to clarify um, any kind of confusion that's been happening. For instance, I, like anybody that's going on to my social media will see that there have been um, quite a few questions about the bill mixed in with uh, a pretty heightened level of um, anxiety about what some people are, are saying the bill would mean. Um, but I'm happy to take questions. And during that committee process, that's also an opportunity for community to come together and explain why this bill is so, so, so desperately needed. That is an important step for sure, for people to be able to understand the bill better. Yeah, for sure. For and sure. why this bill if you don't mind me asking, Laura, what made you think or what made you do this, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say, important but very difficult work? Well, um, thank you for that question. Um, a lot of it was based on what community had been asking for um, for many, many years. In fact, before I was even elected. Um, so for folks that don't know, my background is in education and I used to teach in teacher's college. Um, And at that time, uh, there weren't really a lot of opportunities for new teachers to practice the tools that you need to build inclusion in the classroom. So they were being asked through the Education Act to build inclusive classrooms. They were being asked through the Education Act to ensure that we pay attention to the diverse students in our classrooms. But there were no tools or Mm -hmm. approaches being taught to them. So when I was elected... Um, and when I was given these two really important critic portfolios between the anti-racism critic portfolio and the colleges and universities critic portfolio, I started to hear stories of racism um, in from kindergarten to grade 12 all across the province, not just in the riding, um, and also what was needed on university campuses um, in order to ensure that we build these inclusive education spaces. Um, that the timing of it, of, of putting the bill together, happened incidentally at the same time that locally we started to hear reports of um, some pretty difficult to swallow mm-hmm. um, examples of racism in our school system here in Waterloo Region. Um, and so it became this opportunity to put everything together, the advocacy from communities over the course of many, many decades, um, and the urgency that we were seeing locally to actually build some foundational changes um, so that we can ensure that folks are safe um, and, most importantly, that people have the tools that they need to to do anti-racist work um, in schools. That is correct. It's very interesting mm-hmm. that the government is asking, in this case, the teachers to do something without giving them tools and uh, and the support that they need. And this bill will provide the teachers and educators the tools that they need. Is that correct? Oh, definitely. And sometimes that's what happens with legislation, right? Mm-hmm. So under the liberal government, um, some of that language around inclusion in the classroom was embedded in into legislation. But what was missing was the pathway for the educators that are in the classroom or Mm -hmm. on our campuses Mm -hmm. to know how to do the work. Um, This bill provides, it starts with the idea that not everybody knows, you don't just know how to do anti-racism work or how to address racism in these systems. Um, And it, it provides you with what you need to be able to do that work. And to be honest, I have a lot of educators and professors on campuses that are asking me to help them to do this. 
Um, but if it's not legislated, it's not resourced. And if it's not resourced, then teachers and profs have to find time outside of a really busy mm-hmm. and trying schedule to figure out how to do the work. And in the meantime, who suffers? The children in the classroom, mm-hmm. right? The students in the schools. So there's a way for us to do this with a bigger, uh, a bigger plan um, and an opportunity for everybody to learn and grow together so that we can have the, the school system that we know that we can have. That's great. And and tell our listeners, if approved, and hopefully it will be approved unanimously, mm-hmm. what two or three big changes it will bring about for BIPOC students and their families in the school, school system? Well, the very first is knowing that the educators that are in the classroom, whether it's a kindergarten classroom or post-secondary campus, um, have the tools and access to the resources that they need to build inclusion for these students. Um, recognizing that when a, when a family says or when a student says, look, that experience um, really was, was disheartening because this is what racism looks like for, um, you know, a black student, an indigenous student, a Muslim student, um, an Asian student or a Jewish student, um, this would be an opportunity for their calls for help to be recognized. That's one of the biggest, biggest, Uh, challenges that educators have raised with me as the anti-racism critic, um, that sometimes they don't even know uh, how to recognize Mm -hmm. uh, racism in the classroom, and then they don't know how to address it. So this provides them with, here, this is is what we're talking about, and here are some of the tools and the resources that you need. The next really big change is actually ensuring that the resources are made available to do the work. So when we think about things like... um, In the Toronto District School Board, for instance, there have been a number of instances of anti-Semitism that Mm -hmm. were in the news. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had situations of anti-Semitism in Waterloo Region. Uh, The schools often have to find the resources to do the training or the discussions that they need to have in the school to heal from those examples of anti-Semitism. But if it's embedded in law, there's actually a space where the funds are made available um, from the province to ensure that that is supported and that it's a long-term support network for folks, right? Um, that will be very be helpful. Hugely, yeah, that's going to be a huge difference. And it's going to allow a lot of racialized kids um, and a lot of the diverse student population to feel confident that when they go to school, everybody around them is working towards helping them thrive, right? And that's all that we that's all that it's aiming to do. And it's quite exciting to see the amount of community support that we're getting. This is, this is correct. And just uh, let me just summarize what you said. The major two, the two major points is that number one, it will provide sort of a standard understanding definition of racism so that educators are able to recognize when a student has experienced racism and has turned to them for help. And then it will provide educators and educational institution with supports and resources that they need to deal with, uh, with, um, with the racist incidents at schools. Yes. And you know what, Fazia, there's one other major shift that I think is really important to share with uh, the listeners. And it's moving us away from this idea that racism is an individual thing, like it's individuals that are racist and you just need to deal with those individuals, Mm -hmm. and towards a space where we realize that sometimes well-meaning policies um, end up harming some students more than others, and that it's okay for us to recognize that harm. So there's data collection that would be part of this to check, you know, uh, things like 
um, the push-out rate from schools or the dropout rate is what folks sometimes say. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of data getting collected, looking at curriculum and sort of analyzing, well, who's, who are we hearing from in, in history and who are we not and what can we do to infuse something more diverse in there? Um, it moves us into a space where we can take a deep breath and change policies so that everybody can thrive. Well, that's a lot of upstream should, work, very it's needed. It's so important. And I think that people um, often get worried that something like this would mean we're going to target individual teachers, when in actuality, this shifts the focus to how policies impact students, how they impact uh, racialized staff members, and how they impact our broader community. And I think that that's an opportunity for us to just keep doing the amazing work that so many have been doing before this bill. Um, to build the inclusive classrooms that we're that we're striving for. That's great. Are you able to stay with us after the break? I have a oh, couple sure. of questions. Thank you so much. We'll take a break in about uh, about a minute or so for um, a quick break. Um, but just uh, so that we continue, um, tell us why racial equity still is so important, especially in the school system. Well, I think that the reason why it is so important is because we still get reports of racism in the schools. Um, and I also think that part of why the, the reports of these experiences um, are still happening is because we haven't, we haven't really taken seriously the impact of experiencing racism in our school system. I think that there's sometimes a fear to look at um, the history of the bigger systems that, that are supposed to be supporting us. So like looking at the foundation of healthcare, or looking at the foundation of policing, looking at the foundation of education. It's a scary space to, to be because you feel like you're taking responsibility for, you know, um, ages ago, what decisions somebody made like a century ago. But the reality is I've often been, I've been fielding some calls from people that have some questions about the bill, mm-hmm. um, just regular folks in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was saying to them, it's kind of like when you think about a house. If the foundation of your house isn't solid, um, no matter how beautiful the house is on top, it's bound to have issues, right? And so you've got to make sure that you pay, you tend to the foundation. And the foundation of education in Ontario, the real history is that we had residential schools. Mm-hmm. Um, that was legislated. We had uh, segregated schools. That was legislated. And so once you take away those pieces of legislation and you start to shift what our schools look like, you still have to recognize that those realities have an impact on how things are taught today. It determines what curriculum is in there and what's not. It determines what policies look like um, and, and what the impact is, but it doesn't necessarily shift us into where we need to be. So you address legislation. You, you make amendments, which is what this bill does. It doesn't provide something totally new. It just takes the bills that are legislating our educational system right now and ensures that the tools needed to make our schools and our classrooms more inclusive are also provided to folks that that you have leading the helm of Ontario education. Thank you, Laura. And my concluding question for you is, of course, this work is not easy. What have been the most challenging or just tell us one most challenging aspect of doing your work, especially bringing this bill forward in a minute or so? 
in a minute. Listen, the, the most <laughs> sorry about that. No, don't you even worry. One of the most challenging pieces has been the misrepresentation of the intention of the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I I can't have a discussion about the importance of the bill without paying attention to what the resistance looks like. And it looks like a lot of hate on my social media feed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a lot of questions that like legitimate questions that people have. Mm-hmm. But there's also some fear around doing this work. Um, and so that part has been challenging, but it's opportunities like this where I can take questions, where people can ask me what, you know, talk to me about what you're worried about so that we can have some a, a real discussion um, and we can go back to basics about what it is that this is supposed to do, what it's building on, um, and how important it is if we want to make sure that every student in our, in our classrooms thrives. Listen, Laura, thank you so much for your work. Stay strong. And uh, thank, you. thank you again for taking the time to be on the show with me. Sure. Thank you so much. We will take a quick break now, listeners. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. It was near u- unanimous support. I think what was really, really important um, was to listen to how the government was speaking about the bill, because they're also dealing with examples of racism in schools in their neighborhoods, in their riding. And to have both parliamentary assistance for the Minister of Education and for the Minister of Post-Secondary speak in such powerful ways to the importance of the bill was really, really humbling. Welcome back, listeners, to Kishna Today with your guest host, Fazia Mazhar. We just heard from MPP Laura May Lindo, opposition critic for anti-racism, talking about the bill that she has presented to the legislature for racial equity in schools. And the bill has received near unanimous support, as uh, she was just explaining. I think it's a great thing to happen. What else uh, we can offer to our educators who are doing their day-to-day work is not easy. Um, their day-to-day work is educating children, but our children are also uh, um, um, expending a lot of time in in the schools. And there, if they're not, if they don't feel safe, if they, they don't have the opportunities to thrive, that is not good for anyone. So this bill is going to give our educators tools and resources and supports that they need to make sure that our schools are um, are a place for everyone to thrive, for all students to thrive. So um, what else can we ask for our educators? Our phone lines are open if you would like to call 519-570-2545, 1-800-570-2545. On your cell phone, star 570. Please call in if you want to... Um, uh, comment on anything that Laura May Lindo said or anything else. We have just a few minutes left for your phone calls. I'm really happy to see how this bill has received unanimous or near unanimous support in the legislature. And it's not something that is uh, dividing our parliamentarians on uh, uh, party lines. That's really amazing to see. I think it's about time that we see that sort of change in our legislatures where, where what we need for the community um, is uh, more important than uh, where the um, where the party sometimes uh, party values or or party ideologies can take us. It's it's really amazing to see. 
I know putting together a bill like this is not easy. It takes a, a, a lot of time, a lot of effort. And really, I can't be more grateful for Laura May Lindo and her team and all of her supporters for bringing together this proposed legislation and presenting it and making themselves available for the community to ask questions and clear any um, any any concerns that they have about this before it goes back to legislatures. So we'll, it's time for a news break now. Coming up after the news, we will chat with Tara Bedard of Immigration Partnership Waterloo Region. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back, listeners. We were just talking about March 21st, the International Day for Elimination of Racial Discrimination. This day provides all of us with an opportunity to affirm the values of equality and non-discrimination and recommit ourselves to address biases and prejudices. Locally, Immigration Partnership Waterloo Region, with many community partners, organized a number of events yesterday to commemorate the day. We have Tara Bedard, Executive Director of Immigration Partnership Waterloo Region, on the phone with us to talk about the events yesterday and also the work of Immigration Partnership in general. Welcome, Tara. Hi, Fazia. How are you, Tara, today after the big day yesterday? <laughs> it was a busy day for uh, many of our community partners, that's for sure. And how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling good. I think it was an excellent, um, a really excellent series of events that... Um, Many of the groups that we work with across the region and some of our partner collaboratives put together, um, bringing together a series of really different, diverse, and interesting conversations on the topics of racism, racial discrimination, their impacts on the community here in Waterloo Region, and, um, you know, what more we can and should be doing in the region um, to address those issues. So let's get sort of a synopsis of the events yesterday from you for our listeners. Sure. So we had four, three public events yesterday and one in the morning that we had with just our partners. We started the day um, in the morning with a kind of a closed conversation for people and groups who are involved in our work that we do through the Immigration Partnership, as well as with uh, partners that we work with through the Children and Youth Planning Table of Waterloo Region and Wellbeing Waterloo Region, looking at um, the topic of white supremacy and its role in the perpetuation of racial discrimination. Um, we had a number of speakers from... Um, different groups in, in the region, and I myself participated um, just exploring um, what racism and racial discrimination are, how they're impacting people in our community, what is the role of white supremacy um, in perpetuating um, racism and racial discrimination, mm -hmm. and and, and kind of how that shows up in our day-to-day -day lives, and as, as people who are trying to work to better um, you know, the life for everybody mm -hmm. in the region, what we can and should be doing um, to address that. And we then had a series of three public events. The first event in the morning, we were looking into data uh, collected by the Children's Planning Table last year with children and youth in Waterloo Region that looked at, you know, their perceptions of 
topics related to belonging and discrimination mm-hmm. um, and their overall life satisfaction um, in the region. Later uh, in the afternoon, um, yourself and your colleagues at the Coalition of Muslim Women and others put together a really excellent panel discussion with uh, grassroots community leaders and organizations who are doing a lot of work to address racism and discrimination in this region. It was an opportunity to give, you know, to profile the amazing work that is happening in the region, give recognition to the work that, you know, community leaders are doing, um, and for people to learn more about all of the different types of work that is happening locally in the region. And then we rounded out the day uh, later in the afternoon with a discussion um, with youth together with the Volunteer uh, volunteer Centre of Waterloo Region um, on youth perspectives of, of racism and discrimination and um, what youth would like to be doing and what youth would like to see adults doing um, to address this topic that is impacting them. So it was a busy day with lots of different types of discussions and lots of different types of people involved really just giving profile to a lot of great work that's happening um, around the region. You really had a busy day yesterday, for sure. How were your events received in the community? Uh, we had a really, really strong um, really strong response this year. We've been doing events uh, to commemorate the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination for the last five or six years. And, you know, they grow a little bit every year. More and more people are becoming aware of racism and discrimination and, you know, the way that it impacts people in the region more Mm -hmm. and more people and organizations are wanting to start to grapple with how this shows up in their lives and their role in helping to eliminate racism and discrimination. Um, And, you know, this year with, you know, such a, a dynamic series of events and many, many different groups involved in bringing them together and all of their networks and the reach of all of those organizations. We've had a really, really positive response um, through participation in the events themselves and just engaging in discussion, you know, in stuff that we have been putting out um, online and through social media and in other spaces. That's amazing. And uh, I heard you talk about two events that were focused on youth. Yes. Tell us more about it. Why do you think it's important to have youth as or sort of leading this conversation, not just as part of this conversation? Well, you know, I think racism and discrimination, these are topics that impact everybody. Um, and that includes youth in the region. And often, you know, what we see is adults, leading conversations and planning things and, and, you know, trying to do work on topics that have a really large impact on youth. Um, and often youth are not involved in those conversations. And so taking the lead of other organizations in the region that work, you know, with youth day in and day out and groups like the Children and Youth Planning Table really wanting to center the focus on youth they have you know, they, they, there are many youth in our region who experience racism and discrimination themselves, others who are allies who see those experiences and want to do something about it. You know, there's a lot of energy and um, ideas that, you know, youth in this region have. They're doing amazing things. And so wanted to make sure that with all of the different things that were happening across the region yesterday to, to, you know, to really commemorate the day and bring more attention to racism and discrimination, the work happening in the region that were, that youth were really 
a very big part of that. That's for sure. Youth is our hope for the future. And that future should not be like 100 years from now. It should be tomorrow. The future is now. And, you know, every time I'm, I'm in events that are youth-focused or led by youth, um, you know, it's really amazing, like, what strong leadership mm-hmm. uh, we have amongst the young people in this, in this community, for sure. Definitely. And what would you say is your largest takeaway from yesterday's events or just yesterday in general? Um, you know, I think my, my biggest takeaway is I've, I've been in this region for eight years now and we've been doing this work um, over that time. And I was really uh, struck yesterday by, um, you know, just the growth and the level of awareness of these topics in our region. Mm-hmm really explosive growth in, you know, the engagement and leadership of, you know, kind of grassroots community leaders and organizations and the work that they are doing to, you know, bring awareness and make change um, and ask for change and, you know, center change, the change that is needed um, in this region to address racism and discrimination and just... um, you know, the power that we have here and the really strong resources that this community has across the region in many places and spaces of people who are, you know, not only aware of, but paying attention to and actively looking to address these topics. That's for sure. I heard that very clearly as well at yesterday's event. I think a couple of the speakers talked about how Now we are at a point where there is a broad acknowledgement that racism exists and then we have to do something about it and the systems need to be changed. That need for change and that that need for change to happen quickly is really front and center in conversations now, which is really, really a wonderful thing to see, I'm sure, for people like you who've been doing this work for a very long time. I think it's amazing, and I'm certainly happy to see how much change has happened um, in the years that I've been here. And, you know, that's really a result of, you know, this community is very rich in, like, very strong grassroots anti-racism advocates and activists who are leading the work and, like, leading this community down a path, you know, to change and yeah, it's really it's really amazing to see. And I know that, you know, change, change is slow um, and can be very frustrating. But mm-hmm. I, I definitely see a, a difference from when I started uh, doing this work here eight years ago. And um, I think that everybody who's been involved in, you know, being vocal and being, you know, strong advocates in this region should really be proud of, of you know, kind of how they've moved things in this region over the last years. Definitely. That hasn't been an easy road for people to travel, especially who started long time ago. So tell us, Tara, how yesterday fits in your day-to-day work at Immigration Partnership. So tell us a little bit more about your work at Immigration Partnership. Sure. So the Immigration Partnership is just that. We are a community partnership of many different organizations who are working in the community service space. Uh, we work with our area municipalities, with representatives of the business community, our post-secondary institutions, um, ethnocultural groups and leaders across the region, and just ordinary residents of the region who are interested in immigration and the experiences of immigrants. 
um, all working together um, to develop strategies to ensure that immigrants who come into Waterloo Region are able to um, thrive and help, you know, contribute to a better community for everyone. Um, you know, we take a lot of, we put a lot of effort into doing research and looking at data about what people's, you know, experiences of living here are, <laughs> and then, you know, developing kind of longer term strategies for the things we want to do collectively as organizations so that, you know, there's better conditions for people to be more successful as they come into the community and, you know, looking to try to build the capacity of groups who are working across the region with immigrants um, and then looking at, you know, what are the things that go above and beyond what any one organization or business or other are doing in the community, you know, those things that we can do better together. Um, and so, you know, a lot of public education work and, um, and that type of work. And so, you know, certainly, you know, a focus on racism and discrimination is a strong feature of the work we do, given that, you know, racism is something that immigrants and, you know, some immigrants in this region experience. And so this, you know, the, the work on, you know, facility, you know, bringing together, you know, that series of events yesterday is it just sits a part of the broader work that we're doing to, um, you know, do public education on immigration and the experiences of immigrants and, and help build positive perceptions of immigration in the community and really the contributions that immigrants make to this community together with everyone else. That's great. Thanks, uh, um, Tara. And I just want to turn our conversation a little bit into a different direction. Um, I remember attending the big community meeting that Immigration Partnership pulled together at the time of uh, um, when war was um, really at its peak in Syria and the government announced that uh, they will be bringing 40,000 Syrians um, in uh, Canada. And at the time, I felt very proud of the work in this region. I, I felt like we were ahead of a lot of other places in Canada where people were coming together systems were coming together to plan how to how to welcome our newest residents and i saw you have been busy with the the similar thing when it comes to newcomers from afghanistan and now with ukraine um uh, war um in ukraine tell us more about your uh, um efforts around supporting um, immigration from Ukraine, welcoming people from Ukraine uh, over here in Waterloo region? Yeah, so we are definitely, yeah, a lot of work happened in this region and many other communities, you know, when the federal government announced in 2015, 2016 that it would be, you know, welcoming initially uh, 25,000 Syrian refugees. That has grown to Correct. more than yeah. 50,000 now, I think. Um, you know, we did a and we did really a lot of work in this community to support coordination of all of the different work that, that needed to happen in order to ensure that the families that arrived here were well supported once they were here. And we had at that time put together a task force structure in place kind of under the umbrella of the region of Waterloo that helped to facilitate coordination and information sharing and, you know, kind of, service changes and stuff across, you know, our big systems that would be impacted with um, the families coming in to make sure that they were really, really ready to welcome um, 
welcome the families into into their services and spaces. It, you know, we looked at a lot of different things. Housing is always number one for people when they arrive here. Access to health care, education. We looked at transportation. Um, there was a lot of work around, you know, kind of volunteering, trying to, you know, support coordination of volunteer efforts and donations and many different things. So that when experience the, is now giving you sort of a... And that gave, us yeah. a lot of, that gave us a roadmap for, yes. you know, when the government this summer announced, you know, that it would be welcoming up to 40,000 Afghan refugees uh, to Canada. And we know we are a resettlement community, so we know some of those families will be coming here. You know, we kind of were quickly able to look at what we did with the Syrians and put together a similar but less intensive, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, task force structure, bringing together many of the same systems players to try to help them to have the information and supportive connections that they need to make sure that as the Afghan families arrive in the region, they too are supported in similar ways um, as happened when the Syrians arrived and also other refugees. There are refugees arriving in Waterloo region from around the world mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And now we have layered on top of that the announcements with Ukraine mm-hmm. and uh, Ukrainian families starting to arrive in the region uh, through different means. So, you know, we're pretty lucky right now to have the task force in place because we've already got many of the systems leaders together for them to be able to, um, you know, share their challenges and talk through problems and get information and, and you know, kind of be coordinated across systems and you know we know that there's a lot of grassroots mobilizing happening across the region um you know people want to help when they hear these things and they're looking for things that they can do in really concrete ways that um can help the families who are arriving and so you know we're we're talking with you know the people in the community who are helping to lead some of those efforts and just trying to make sure that everybody knows about the work that's happening with kind of the more formal system so that when the families arrive here, no matter what is, no matter what their point of contact into the region, um, they're going to be able to get the information they need to help them start to get settled um, and, you know, help their kids get into school, find housing, find doctors, etc., um, as easily as possible in a really difficult transitional time. Thanks. Thank goodness for you, for your organization, Immigration Partnership, Waterloo Region, and a lot of other individuals and grassroots group in our community who are working hard to make sure that displaced people in the world can find our region a welcoming place when they don't have any other options. The, the challenge is that there are so many wars and conflicts happening, violence happening around the world and really sometimes i feel like we can't do anything but one thing that we can definitely do is provide a welcoming place for those who are able to join us here in our region and in our country thank you tara for all of your work and for immigration partnership we're going to take a quick break now and we'll come back um in a few seconds this is kitchener today on city news 570 there's better conditions for people to be more successful as they come into the community, you know, looking to try to build the capacity of groups who are working across the region with immigrants and then looking at, you know, what are the things that go above and beyond what any one organization or business or other are doing in the community, you know, those things that we can do better together. Um, And so, you know, a lot of public education work and, and that type of work. 
Welcome back to Kitchener today with your guest host Fazia Mazhar. We have two callers online. Mike, thank you for your long wait. You're on on air now. I uh, I just uh, I just uh, I'm an immigrant myself, mm-hmm. and uh, I came uh, 35, 36 years ago. It, it was absolutely no protection whatsoever, and was absolutely no what hands out from the government. Absolutely nothing. I came here. I was on my own. I needed to care of myself. Nobody protected me. Nobody took care of me. And I will, I will make my, my comment is that all the immigrants which are coming in this country wanting to make a positive impression or a, a, a contribution, I'm sorry, to this country. Absolutely. Honest, honest uh, and, and uh, hardworking don't need any protection. We protect the other ones. We all know what, which ones are those. That was my comment. Thank you. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike, for your call. Bob. Bob, you're next. How are you? Good. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. Um, I have a comment or like a, a concern. Can you tell me where all the new immigrants were taking in like constantly and constantly and constantly? Like we're in the region is in a, a housing crisis, mm-hmm. like all of southern Ontario. It seems we keep taking more and more people, and I have, I just heard the other caller when people came here, they they really got nothing, and it at least they got their freedom and they got to live without it, without being in tyranny and stuff. But I don't like we're all paying for this, like the, the the taxation, the taxation, the taxation. Well, that's fine and good. Like we're all paying, and it's getting harder and harder and harder to live. I don't I don't understand. There comes a time when even you know, so many social programs and everything is making it so hard to live for everyone. Like soon it's going to be no better here than where people came from, unless there is war and tyranny. I understand that, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, I'd like, you can maybe tell me, I'll be quiet for a minute. Where is everybody staying? They keep bringing in and healthcare and everything. Where is everybody living? Well, where it depends. So I'm worried about the time. We have to take a break for news very soon. Um, um, I don't know where to start. It depends who we are talking about. Canada has an immigration system where majority of immigrants come through the point system where they're supposed to bring financial resources for themselves to help them stay without any job or anything, at least for the first six months. They're also supposed to, there are also business class where people come as investors. A lot of people who would not need, and not only that they would not need any resources from the government, they actually bring resources to Canada in terms of money and their skills. And then there is a smaller part of our new um, arrivals who come here as refugees as part of international treaties that Canada right. and other states have with the, in right. terms of uh, helping, supporting people who are fleeing war many, and persecution. How many people a year you think are, are being, coming to Canada as refugees? Um, the last I know, if the total number of immigrants were about 200,000, the refugees right. would be around twenty to 23,000 a year. In most recent years, there have been a, a, a uh, a little bit bigger number of refugees, but basically the way we see it is that if 40,000 refugees are coming from Syria, all of them will not come in one calendar year. It might take two to three years. So unfortunately, in most recent years, we have seen more wars and more violence around the world. 
Thank you so much for your call, Bob. And now we're going to take a quick break um, for news. This is Kishna Today on City News 570. Hi, welcome back, listeners. This is Kishner today, and I'm your guest host, Fazia Mazhar. So what are we talking about next? Well, you probably all have read this news about Waterloo Region remains among the top 10 metropolitan areas in Canada for most reported hate crimes for its population size with local police reporting a significant increase in hate crimes in the first year of the pandemic. And a new Statistics Canada report shows hate crimes reported to Waterloo Regional Police increased 260% between 2019 and 2020. So it's just a year. In 2020, Waterloo Region reported the most hate crimes since comparable data became available in 2009. There were 54 incidents reported in 2020 compared to 15 in 2019. We have Eric Boynton, Staff Sergeant, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Unit at Waterloo Regional Police Services on the call to discuss this further. Hi, Eric. Hi, Fazia. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're welcome. And thank you uh, to you as well for taking the time on such a short notice. Um, so for our listeners, can you just give a high-level elevator pitch about what constitutes a hate crime in Canada? Yeah, what I would say is that um, you know the Criminal Code of Canada has specific pieces of legislation that have to do with hate crimes that are very narrow in their scope. But the majority of those things that the police are dealing with are more crimes that have a hate-related element to them. You know, Indeed, the, the Criminal Code allows for increased sentencing when we can demonstrate that you know, bias and prejudice and these types of things were a factor in a criminal offense, and that's uh, mostly what, what we're dealing with. But we also deal with what we describe as hate-motivated incidences, which um, may at times not be crimes themselves, but cause a great deal of distress to, to victims of these incidents in the community. And so, you know, all three aspects of, of hate crimes, incidences, and those pieces are things that we're trying to work hard to uh, make a difference on in the community so that people feel um, that they're welcome and that they can go about uh, their business, uh, you know, live happy lives and so on without fear of, of any of these things impacting them in the day-to-day. Yeah, so these are two different categories, hate incidents and hate crimes. So is it fair to say that in general, when we hear the term hate crime, it means a crime was committed, something, an act that is actually defined as a crime in the Criminal Code of Canada, and then hate was an aggravated uh, uh, aggravating factor in that crime? Certainly. So, um, you know, a common incident, um, a very unfortunate incident that we find in the community is someone may... Um, put you know a racist remarks um, on a, the side of a building or something, and, and and the offense there for that graffiti is is mischief. But um, you know should we find the person and lay a charge and so on? Um, it's the hate motivated piece involved that would be added um, you know throughout the court process and so on. The actual hate crimes in the criminal code themselves, such as you know advocating genocide um, and those types of things, are, are, are quite rare, um, and it's more the hate motivated. Um, crimes that are things that uh, that we deal with on a, on a more common basis. 
Has there been any instance in uh, Waterloo region where somebody was uh, uh, tried for clearly defined hate crimes in uh, Canadian criminal code? That is hate pro- propaganda, hate... Uh, uh, just, just remind me. Yeah, yeah. Advocating for genocide, correct? And there is one more. Yeah. Hate speech. Yeah, and, and what I would say is, you know, I've been doing this work in this region for uh, a few years now, and uh, none of those cases have, have come to light um, while, while I've been working here. I, I could look historically to see if that's been the case, but it's, it's quite rare, and the threshold um, to lay those charges are quite high, and, mm-hmm. and usually with those types of charges, it's in consultation with uh, Crown attorneys and so on before we proceed in that way, but uh, it's quite rare to see those offenses for sure. Um, Eric, what, in your opinion, is the reason or maybe the reasons for the increase in numbers from 15 in 2019 to 54 in 2020? Well, I'll be uh, very, very candid with you to say that um, I I don't think that there's been any more hate crimes in our region. I think that, um, you know, there's a history with police where some folks don't feel um, comfortable to report the things that are happening to them. Um, And I think that um, increase in number is just by virtue of people feeling more comfortable reporting to the police. Um, but at the same time, I think that um, we've seen a lot of um, things happening in our region, you know, wonderfully um, and happily we've become a more diverse region. Um, you know, more people may experience these types of things, um, you know, in different ways and feel um, various amounts of comfort with reporting to the police and so on. And and I'll say this much, um, you know, if I see a number in the 50s, in my mind, I think that there's probably much more that, you know, we haven't mm-hmm. yet got to a place of making everyone feel comfortable and knowing that when they report these incidents to the police, we take them very serious. We have, you know, a process in place to make sure that we're investigating them all quite thoroughly. Um, and I think, you know, when, when, when we're in a good place as a region, um, I think there'll be sort of that growing pain in there of trying to understand the increase in that number. And maybe it is more um, to do with the fact that we've done a better job of convincing diverse communities we serve that they have a place in calling us and that we're going to respond compassionately um, and in a meaningful way to their concerns. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that this number is not the number that number of cases that were reported to the police services. It's the number of cases that where the charges were laid uh, with hate as uh, the aggravating factor. Yeah, and what I'll say is um, it also, there's some complexity. So, for instance, I'll give you a, a, an example. Um, sometimes I could think of one particular incident where um, officers attended a call for service, and the person who reported the call themselves didn't outline that hate was an element at play. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of great work training our members um, through in-service training and, and through outreach and so on, where those officers smartly identified that hate was um, at the crux of what had happened. And so those officers um, themselves were the ones who... Um, led the case toward an investigation of, of, of hate motivation. And so sometimes um, we are laying charges and incidences where the people themselves aren't necessarily from the get-go saying this is a hate crime, but our investigative process has led to that conclusion. And so um, it can be very difficult um, from, you know, looking at, well, is it the number of people that are calling? Is it the number of incidences themselves, the number of charges, and so on. And so um, that can be quite difficult to get a grasp on. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the number um, is going in the direction of indicating to me that we're getting more um, interaction from victims and that they're, they're reaching out to us, because I think that's the way that we can um, make sure we bring the offenders to justice and put them in the appropriate processes, but also uh, make sure that those victims get the supports they need.
This is correct. It's such a sad situation to be in, right? On one hand, you just do you not know, want to see one single hate crime reported from Waterloo region, right? Like you don't want to see that happen. But at the same time, we know that this is happening. This has happened for a very long time. So in that case, it's better for us to be able to see the data. It's better for us to be able to resolve some of these cases. It's better for us for the victims to have this trust that if they come forward and they report something is going to happen. You're you're absolutely right. And I can say, you know, through disaggregating some of this data, we're able to learn um, how to more effectively address the needs of the community. I mean, um, you know, we've had this discussion internally. We've seen an increase in these types of incidences throughout the pandemic toward the mm-hmm. And so when we're able to look at data from that lens, we're able to say, you know, how can we meaningfully address the specific concerns of a particular community group that are facing hate in a specific way? Same with um, Islamophobia and these different mm-hmm. types of issues we're seeing. Um, because, you know, even though hate is an umbrella, um, different groups experience Um, that differently and so we want to be able to tailor our response um, to everybody's needs that is wonderful it's not wonderful i just think i'm really torn what should i say (laughs) right um so one other question that i have for you is that um i remember in 2020 i saw a number of stories in the local media that were related to hate um, I can recall, like, you know, um, many different things from graffiti to, um, I think a trail was vandalized at one point and all that. But at the end of the year, if someone like me want to go to one place and see what exactly has happened in terms of, um, hate crimes in, uh, Waterloo region, I don't think we have a place like this. So in the end, what we see is a number that is sort of incorporated in a much bigger number from the report that's coming from the annual report that's coming from Statistics Canada. I wanted to know, like, you know, especially if you look at 54, the number in 2020 or even in 2021, what are some examples of hate crimes that are happening in our in our Waterloo region? Basically, I'm asking about the stories behind these numbers. And of course, I understand that you will have some privacy concerns. So just give us a general idea. What do you see as sort of um, the acts that are then counted as hate crimes um, eventually? Of course, yeah. And I think, Fazia, you illuminated something, you know, we're we're sort of growing um, as a police service and as a community in our response to these types of pieces. And, you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen, you know, uh, an ability to leverage technology. I know that there are community agencies like the Coalition of Muslim Women who have their online reporting system. We've launched a, a web page that, that provides information on hate crimes and, mm-hmm. and, and connects people with community groups that will be able to support them through that. Um, and I think that there is a space to um, provide in a more open way um, that desegregated data so that people from community groups who want to support are able to tailor those those responses. And so... Um, you know, we do ourselves have a tracking document of these types of things, and, and I often get um, inquiries in my office from um, certain groups that are working with um, affected individuals or groups, and they'll ask us for those numbers, and we'll go through and we'll provide that to them, um, obviously with the privacy pieces in place, but um, allowing them to understand the particular circumstances facing that community group and so on. But I think in the next little while, there's room to um, sort of publish that stuff in a disaggregated way, probably uh, on our webpage, and then also provide it to um, those key community groups that are engaged and involved. But um, from a, a 
specific way of talking about the types of things we're seeing, I can tell you that uh, myself and, and my partner in the office, uh, Constable Gill, who works extensively with this, with this work, um, oftentimes our hearts are broken. Um, we, we deal with victims who, you know, are, are, are literally going about their day-to-day lives, um, doing those things that we take, um, you know... For granted. Myself. Myself as a police officer, you know, I, I, I view the world in a certain way and, and, and so on. And so, um, you know, to hear that there are people that they're just trying to go get groceries, they're just trying to bring their kids to the park, they're just trying to, these types of things. And, and they face um, sometimes, um, you know, verbal verbal assaults that have to do with racism or xenophobia or, or anti-Semitism you know, um, semitism and these types of pieces. Um, sometimes we see that and, and oftentimes... Um, you know, it's those types of incidences that are reported to us, and we certainly, you know, engage in an investigation into, you know, does that constitute harassment and causing a disturbance and those types of things. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes we see, um, you know, uh, things that are escalated. Sometimes we see um, spats of violence. I know that, you know, with our, our brothers and sisters in the Asian community, mm-hmm. there was a, a, a brick thrown through somebody's window um, that had some some really awful uh, racist things written on it, and and when those types of things happen, we have a, a fairly robust response um, that's streamlined within our organization, which involves um, supports from units like ours, uh, oversight from senior leaders, and investigative work by our investigative teams, including our hate crimes unit, to make sure that we really do everything that we can in order to. Uh, again, bring those people to justice, create safe environments for folks, uh, and also make sure that that we're uh, you know providing the supports as needed. So that's a very good segue for my next question. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm sure you have read the recent the recent article in Glo- Globe and Mail that puts Waterloo Region at bottom third for the number of hate crimes solved with a charge. The highest rates, I think they considered 13 municipalities across Canada, were still like 25 to 30 percent. However, for Waterloo Region, I think it was 8%. It made me wonder why there are so few cases resolved with the charge in Waterloo Region. What resources does Waterloo Region Police Services have currently to dedicate to the hate crime issue? What is lacking? Yeah, so what I'd say is, um, you know, police resources across our province and and indeed across the country are are, are really um, quite tight and, and buttoned down in terms of the amount of, of issues they're responding to and, and with ongoing pressures trying to address, you know, a variety of things happening in our community. From and what resources does Waterloo Region Police Services have currently? Yeah, so we have a variety of units that, that do investigative pieces and support pieces. I would say that um, some of the difficulty becomes, um, first and foremost, we need to do better in convincing the community that they can report to us because at times things are maybe reported third hand later where we may have lost access to certain bits of evidence or, um, you know, people don't uh, report it at the time where we may be able to, you know, gather video, um, talk to witnesses and so on in order to um, apprehend somebody and and go through that process. Um, But other times, you know, it can become very difficult to, to, um, to, you know, identify who may be responsible because it's something, let's say, like graffiti or someone writes something racist on a on an establishment or something, but it's very hard to bring that person to justice. I, I will say one other piece is that, you know, in the Waterloo region, we have a, a history of, of restorative justice practices. And um, there are a variety of agencies, you know, in particular, uh, I'm thinking of community justice initiatives and the work of the Coalition of Muslim Women and so on, where at times... Um, you know, someone may do something that is constituted as involving hate, 
But we realize that, you know, not always is the penal system the best way to address that. Sometimes we're able to get that person into a support circle where victims and the offender can come together for a greater understanding of the harm done. Um, and, and so that wouldn't be dealt with by a charge, but, you know, I think in our collective view, we would see it as um, a greater outcome for the community because, you know, just arresting and charging doesn't necessarily bring an understanding and then that person comes out um, from that process and maybe they do it again. But what we're finding is a great success through um, certain resources where folks are really... Thank you. Thank you, Eric. I'm sorry to cut you off. We have to take a quick break. Thank you for taking the time to be here and hopefully we'll have you back on the show at another time to talk more about this issue. We'll take a quick break now, listeners. This is Kishna today on City City News 570 can be very difficult from, you know, looking at, well, is it the number of people that are calling? Is it the number of incidences themselves, the number of charges and so on? And so that can be quite difficult to get a grasp on. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the number is going in the direction of indicating to me that we're getting more um, interaction from victims and that they're, they're reaching out to us, because I think that's the way that we can make sure we bring the offenders to justice and put them in the appropriate processes, but also uh, make sure that those victims get the supports they need. That was Eric Boynton from Waterloo Region Police Services, a staff sergeant, diversity, equity and inclusion department. And this is so true. This is sort of business that you never want to deal with, but you also want to make sure that there is this service available, the supports are available so that when people need it, it's there. It's really to be in that place where you don't want the food bank to have a second day. But you continue to ha- continue to want to have the food bank so that people who are in need are able to get what they need. So our phone lines are open, 519-570-2545, 1-800-570-5715 or star 570 on your cell phone. Call in if there is um, anything you would like to comment on. If you have experienced a hate crime or hate incident, um, you want to talk about your experience, if you have any questions about that or anything else that you would like to share, call in. We are here for you. Um, I was just going to talk about um, this uh, big gap between how Canadians uh, report hate crimes or hate incident when it's self-reported and when they get reported to the police. So Canadians self-reported just about 250,000 hate-motivated incident in 2019, 223,000 to be exact. And But police only investigated fewer than 1% of them, them as hate crimes all over Canada. Although about 130,000 of these incidents that were not reported to the police police were violent hate crimes. Out of that number, 130,000, only 48,000 were reported to the police. And what happens at the end? How many cases do you think saw the daylight or they were charged as hate crimes? Just about 2,000 out of 48,000. Just about 2,000 ended up classified, being classified as hate crimes. And why such a big gap? So this morning, Mike Farwell talked to Barbara Perry about lots of different challenges that people have and police services have uh, when it comes to dealing with hate crimes. 
we really need to think about um, as a as a society what do we want to do about uh, this this second pandemic sometimes uh, that we call of violence violence against women violence against minorities scapegoating minorities when when we have eco- uh, economic problems in in our society the amount of anti asian hate and islamophobic hate during pandemic was out of this place out of the world out of this world it was just so much and in your face and uh, and and we think what is missing so the barriers that barbara perry talked about of course they include um people not reporting to the police because they don't think anything um will happen uh, because the threshold to prove a hate incident as a hate crime is very very high and there's no clear definition of hate crimes in the criminal code as we just heard from eric so basically somebody has to commit a crime to be able to 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 go to the court um so we're going to take a news break here and We'll come back after the news. We will chat with Stephanie Gortz, who is the founder of a group that has come together quickly to help Ukrainian refugees. This is Kishna today on City TV, City News 570. Welcome back, listeners, to Kitchener Today with your guest host, Fazia Mazhar. This segment of our show, we have a guest, Stephanie Gertz. Stephanie has uh, founded a group in uh, Waterloo Region called Waterloo Region Grass, Grassroot Response to the Ukrainian Crisis. The group has been very active in mobilizing the community to start planning and and uh, planning for Ukrainian refugees to come um, and make Waterloo Region uh, home. We have Stephanie here. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for finding the time for our show. Um, so tell us about, first of all, how your group came about. You know what? I I feel that um, at, about a week after the, the the war started, I found that many people that were in our community were talking and trying to figure out next steps and how we can help and what we can do from our side of things. Um, and we we were scrambling to find resources and tools, and so we just kind of came together and started mobilizing. Um, I have a event event experience background and kind of mobilizing community and started some forms up and the money people in the community kind of joined in and said, yeah, you know, we're, we're on this. Let's, let's get together and figure out next step. And uh, how, how big is the group now? And what is the makeup of your group? Is it all made up of individuals or you have groups and organizations uh, as part of the group? As part of the group. It is all, it is all volunteers and they're volunteers from, um, well, mostly started in Wilmot. This was a, uh-huh. originally started off as a Wilmot focus within the first. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and we had about a hundred people sign up for volunteering. In that the first is amazing. Week. Um, and within the first week, or about five days worth of coming up with the idea for our first event, on um, five days later, we had 160 people um, register for our event, and about 125 people attended. Um, so the outpour has been phenomenal. 
But since this time, we've been working very closely with the Regional Waterloo Immigration Services and the mm -hmm. YMCA and Multicultural Services and the Ukrainian community and St. Uh, Sophia Ukrainian Church. We found that because of we had these connections and these, we were building these relationships that we needed to branch out past Wilmot and that we were being asked to help you know, carry this, uh, grow the support network in Waterloo Region. And that's why we changed our name within the first week um, from Wilmot and surrounding to Waterloo Region. And it's just every, anyone who wants to help. Uh, we started up a volunteer form right at the very beginning, and we're now up to 175 people who have completed that volunteer form looking to help in some way, either with creation of kits or translations or helping to provide homes, preparing meals, That uh, is just beyond amazing. Yeah, and we have about, I think, about 25 core organizers right now, but we're growing in our kind of core organization capacity by about two or three volunteers a day. So it's it's a huge challenge, I find, because there's so many people that want to help from so many different backgrounds, but it has been so successful, and the, the teams of people that have been built and have been created and working together has just been... It's just been so inspiring. That is amazing. So is your group thinking of sponsorship? What sort of um, opportunities of uh, support you're thinking about? I know you talked about helping with housing and a lot of other things, but are your group is your group also interested in sponsorship opportunities? So the 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 way the Canadian government has has changed the process that uh, Ukrainians are able to come into the country, they're not classified as refugees by the Canadian government. So there's there's not really a sponsorship in the formal way that sponsorship has been done with previous refugees, where you have to have a house of, I think, four or five people or a church organization sponsoring. Uh, right now, they, they've slimmed down the application process. But mm -hmm. from what I've heard, it's still extensive and still time-consuming and very hard for people in Ukraine to... Um, or people fleeing Ukraine to get access to a Wi-Fi, get online, or get to an office that has the application, mm -hmm. connect with family, because they have to have family in Canada to mm. even apply for this application. Then those family members have to work through maybe the dialect um, differences and and any other issues with understanding of information. Then that person here has to find a guarantor that can guarantee that they have the financial ability to, you know, have these people come and, and stay with them in Canada. So there's a lot of steps that are still in place. It's, like I said, slimmed down from the normal process. So we're not involved in the sponsorship of individual families, but we are working very closely with the Ukrainian community who is working through that process. And we're trying to fill the gap of where they might feel overwhelmed or unsure. And one of the areas we're thinking about doing, and this is just kind of an idea, so if other people want to help build this idea, come, please tell us, but is to find people that have um, a lawyer, like a lawyer experience or some kind of person that can act as a guarantor mm -hmm. who will be willing to work pro bono with as many Ukrainian families local as possible to help them fill out these applications so that they're not struggling with that process being and at the same time being so overwhelmed and stressed that their family is in Poland or other countries mm -hmm. or in Ukraine and they can't do cancel the paperwork faster. And what is required of a guarantor? That's you know this application process is extremely 
new and we're not necessarily involved in that process. We're mm-hmm. leaving that up to the YMCA or the Water the Reef Immigration Services. So they do have a number of resources for that. Um, like Water the Region Immigration Service has said, you know, they see us as part of the, the gears of how Water the Region is working, is that, you know, they have the regional organizations that are fitting their pieces, and then they have the Ukrainian community um, that's fitting the other piece, and then they're seeing us or organizations like us that are helping to support us from the general community mm-hmm. to fill the gaps that we're finding are existing now because the process is not the same. That's a large piece of work in resettlement, getting help support from the community, mobilizing the community, getting volunteers, getting housing, lots of other things. So that's really amazing that your group could uh, come together and uh, take charge for something that needed to be done by someone. Um, have you, do you know if any um, any families have arrived from Ukraine, either in Wilmot or Waterloo region in general? Yes, so families have slowly started trickling in. Like I was saying, that there's, for me and other people, we were shocked and dismayed that the application process has still been so hard. And so families have been trickling in. Um, one example is this weekend. Mm-hmm. A new family that came in with uh, several young children, and, you know, they asked for, you know, their request of items, such as household items, clothing. But one of the things that one of the children asked for was a stuffed turtle. That's oh. all she wanted was a stuffed turtle. So immediately our organizing team jumped in and, and kind of put the word out. And in about a day, we had eight different stuffed animals that were picked up by one of our volunteers That's and they delivered today. So it's just when you see the page and the outreach of our Facebook page and the Ukrainian um, support uh, Facebook page of Water of the Region as well, you see the outpour of all these people. Everyone desperately wants to help, and they want to know how they can do it. And that's where we're trying to fill that gap. Uh, we're not perfect. We are scrambling. Mm-hmm. We're only two and a half weeks old, literally from idea stage to now. Um, and we are really just trying to do our best. So hopefully those 175 people that are filled at our volunteer form who maybe haven't heard from us yet, that we're trying desperately to get back to them and figure out how these pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're looking for help with housing. Uh, Ukrainian families don't necessarily feel comfortable coming to Canada if they don't know where they're going to live. Correct. And their family members in one of the region will probably can fill the paperwork, but they might not be able to provide the housing mm-hmm. for for those families. So we are do have a form on our website. Our website is wrgrassrootsresponse.ca. And we do a website, a form of there, people who say, you know, I can share a room. I have a basement apartment. And we're trying to work with the Ukrainian community, or we are working with the Ukrainian community to help, you know, create that bridge between the Ukrainian families that are coming and those housing options. Have you had any luck, especially when it comes to housing? Yeah. Yeah. Housing is the most difficult. Yeah, we've had about 40 people already um, have responded saying that they are able to take um, more one family or they have multiple rooms or spaces. So we're looking for And can more. people do the housing option on a temporary basis? Like, can they say that we have the housing accommodation available for one month, for two months, or three months, more like a transitional housing? Yes, absolutely. And that's what we're hoping. Some some Ukrainian families aren't, you know, their goal is to get back to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. They're here to, to reach a place of safety. Um, their goal is to, a lot of them, their goal is to get back home, to rebuild their country and, and to support 
initiatives for, um, uh, you know, reestablishing uh, grocery stores and food, you know, just rebuilding their community. So many of them might only be here. I mean, we have no clue how long this work going to go on for, but some of them may only be here for a month or two. So, yeah, temporary housing is absolutely... Yes, we all wish that war will stop tomorrow and they can go back home safely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what are some of the places where people can... Are there any drop-off locations for donations at this time? We are working on that. <laughs> the logistics of trying to coordinate spaces and locations mm-hmm. for dropping off donations and then making sure that it's what the Ukrainian families would need because each family is going to be unique and we have very little information about the families coming before they actually arrive at mm-hmm. the airport. So we are working on that right now and hopefully in the next few days we will start being able to advertise that um, at a future date we can start accepting donations uh, at a local location within Kitchener-Waterloo. Great. And what would you say is would be the most needed donations uh, donation when you are able to get them? Um, yeah, I think since many of the people that are providing accommodations, it's in their own homes. So they already have many of the things that are needed um, for that family. Mm-hmm. And they're now welcome into their kitchens and their living rooms. So I think mostly would be clothing, shoes, mm-hmm. personal hygiene items. We are coming up with kits. So we do have a team that's working at uh, secondary school education kit and a primary school education kit as well as a hygiene kit so that when every child that comes in, they get a knapsack, they get crayons, they get, you know, books mm-hmm. uh, or coloring books so that, you know, that's a more of the bulk items that we're looking for donations from businesses so that we can put those kits together that way. And you may not know the answer for this question. Like, I am not sure if government is involved. What is government's involvement in that? Would government be providing some sort of temporary residence to uh, to people coming from Ukraine at the beginning? Yeah, I, I think everyone needs to reach out to their MP, mm-hmm. their local MP, to uh, make it very firm that our, our, and our MPP is actually in Ontario, mm-hmm. um, make it very firm that we need our government at all levels to do more. For example, the Ontario government has not guaranteed that any Ukrainians that are coming to Ontario will get health care. Other provinces have. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So other provinces have. Ontario has not. So when we look at which locations or which provinces Ukrainians will choose to come to, you know, if they're pregnant or have health issues or have any health concerns. In general. You know. They're, in general, they're going to go to a province or they're going to prioritize provinces that have that are going to give them health care. So I think every single person needs to phone their MPP and, and demand that, you know, this is this is absolutely unacceptable and that we need to be doing more. But as for housing, the federal government, like like we mentioned earlier, this is a new process. So there's huge gaps in what resources um, these incoming uh, Ukrainian uh, displaced Ukrainians will be receiving because there, there's half of the programs that refugees or immigrants would have received, these um, newcomers are not going to get them because they're not listed as refugees. They're listed as displaced Ukrainians. 
um, or not listed, but they're considered as displaced because they they may go back home, right? Right. Um, that is so, a very yeah. new category for Canada to have. To yeah, it's, it's the first time it's ever been done. Right, and you can um, see the benefit of it. It it is supposed to expedite the process, but it's also creating barriers of its own. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Stephanie, um, let's uh, conclude this conclude this conversation. I've learned so much from this conversation myself. Thank you for that. Tell us how the community can help. I know you have a number of volunteers. Do you want volunteers to keep coming to you? What is that your group needs the most right now? Yes, please. Any volunteers still keep keep filling out our volunteer form. We're going to keep adapting it to based on the needs we're hearing because we're working so closely. With the Ukrainian community, we're often hearing gaps and needs from from them that they need help finding. So, for example, uh, they were looking for people to help with transportation and bringing people from the airport mm-hmm. uh, locally. So we reached out to people that all completed our forms and said they would be willing to do transportation and, you know, funneled those volunteers there. And so we're also hearing about gaps in the region and through the YMCA and and so we're hoping to be a central location of collecting this information just because we've already started doing it and it seems to be working well. So one but more we time. We need organizers. We do need people to step forward and say, I want to organize this and I want to do work as a team. One more time quickly before we say goodbye to you, Stephanie. Where can people find you on the Internet? Yeah, so it's our website, www.wrgrassroots.com response.ca and we also have a Facebook page and Twitter. That's great. Thanks a lot, Stephanie, for your work. Listeners, we'll take a quick break now. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Everyone desperately wants to help and they want to know how they can do it. And that's where we're trying to fill that gap. Uh, we're not perfect. We are scrambling. Mm-hmm. We're only two and a half weeks old, literally from idea stage now. And we are really trying to do our best. Hopefully those 175 people that are filled at our volunteer form who maybe haven't heard from us yet, that we're trying desperately to get back to them and figure out how these pieces fit together. Yeah, uh, heartening talk that we had with Stephanie, it made me just proud and even more proud on being a resident of Waterloo Region, a place that I call home. Waterloo Region has a long history of people coming from across the world, fleeing from war, conflict, famine, from our history coming, uh, we can talk about Mennonite communities over here. It's not a phenomenon of today. It has always happened. But what's very heartening is that the same people who came to Waterloo Region at one point fleeing from war and persecution, and they needed a place and a peaceful place to call home. They open up their hearts and their homes when they see others struggling and, and, and finding themselves in the same situation. Our phone lines are open for you listeners, please call in if you can, 519-570-2545, toll-free 1-800-570-5715 on your cell phone, hands-free, star 570. We're here to answer your phone call. 
while we continue this conversation about uh, um, about the need for uh, the 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 latest wave of uh, people who have found themselves in this difficult situation of war and violence this time in Ukraine to find peace and to find even if that peace even if that peace is temporary if they can come to Canada and other places in the world and find uh, um, that peace and uh, home that would be um, great so it's been amazing to hear all of these stories we heard Tara Bedard earlier immigration partnership there are a, lo- a number of other groups doing similar work in the region of Waterloo welcoming um, people who are displaced because of va- war and violence throughout the world most recently in Ukraine and it's really heartening to see how community is uh, has been coming together uh, to support uh, these efforts Our phone lines are open. This is the last call for a call. If you can, we have a few minutes lay, uh, left. 519-570-2545, 1-800-570-5715, toll free. And then on your cell phone, star 570, hands free. And also our next segment is uh, going to have a lot of opportunities to call in and uh, talk about uh, different things. I don't know what's coming up next. It's a surprise. So let's see. Um, what you're going to get in the next segment, which will start around 2.05. And uh, let's just make sure that you are tuned in, listening to the news. We will be taking a break very soon for news. And you just stay tuned for what comes in the next segment. Hopefully things to, to discuss and things uh, to um to make us all feel better i see that there is sun out now it's a better day than how i started so it's just uh, let's say what's coming our way in a few minutes we will take a quick news break now and um when we will come back again this will be a surprise segment so let's see what comes your way this is kitchener today on city news 570 Welcome back listeners. This is Kitchener today and I'm your guest host Fazia Mazhar. Well, we're going to switch gears now. There's been a lot of very 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 difficult conversations happening as well. We're going to switch our gears now and talk about things that we all I believe we all are thinking about right now. Now that uh, travel is becoming more common, available, things are opening up. what are you planning to do what's this one place in the world or one thing that you would really love to see there's something that's on your bucket list that you sort of were thinking about all this time during pandemic and now you are ready to make your travel plans and pick up the phone call and bo- uh, pick up the phone and book that trip we would love to hear from you call in our numbers are 5195700 2515 toll free 1-800-5715 and on your cell phone hands free star 570 in the studio we have Polly and Brittany so let's start from there 
Yeah. Party. Have you traveled after things have opened up? No, I ha- I'm about to. My wife and I, in just a couple of weeks, are going down to Las Vegas, which we love Las Vegas. Viva We've been there four times. Is this your hundredth trip? This is our fifth trip, fifth trip. <laughs> to okay. Las Vegas, but we haven't been out of the country since October of 2019, so wow. we're really looking forward to it. And didn't you guys actually have like a trip planned right before yeah. the pandemic hit? That's right. We were supposed to go to Vegas in April of 2020, so wow. exactly two years later. So this is kind That's of a crazy. A What's the biggest trip. regret? That you were not able to make in 2020? Uh, uh, probably that. Tr- I was really looking forward to that trip to Vegas. <laughs> but on the topic at hand, right, of, of any place that we want to go that we haven't been to before, I think Germany is on my short list. And I might, might, maybe be going there later this year, maybe. And is there a special attraction, a site, well, history? Well, my sister-in-law lives in Germany, so we'd be going to visit her. But I've always wanted to go and see, uh, you know, Berlin, mm. you know, the history there, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the remnants of the Berlin Wall. And then just, you know, the architecture in the city looks really interesting. So definitely. Germany, is full of, yeah, Germany yeah. particularly Berlin, mm-hmm. is uh, a city that I want to go to. And it's, it's probably the next trip after Vegas for me, quite frankly. That's wow. probably where we're going. Well, you make sure that you book this trip as soon yeah. as possible. Yeah. Then I got to start saving up the money. That's the thing. <laughs> That's I great. have no money to do anything. <laughs> Hang on, Brittany. We're going to ask you the same question. Okay. Don't think you will not be answering this question. But for now, we have Rush on uh, the line for us. Rush, what are you planning to do? What's one place in the world that you want to see as quickly as possible? I'd like to go anywhere, to be honest. Anywhere out of this country. I'm with you. Wonderful. Anywhere warm and, and sunny. Um, unfortunately, like many Canadians, I'm still a... Uh, I'm, uh, we're, my family's still prisoner to the, uh, to the Canadian government, so we're not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. But hopefully that changes soon and I can get somewhere warm. I think the, uh, the policies have changed a lot. You can travel now. I just traveled to U.S. I admit it wasn't the warm place that I wanted to be the ideal warm place. I just went to Boston for a week. Cool. That was my first visit after 2019. Any international, sort of international, I don't know if we call travel to U.S. international or not, but I'd call it international in two years, two and a half years of, of um, actually. Oh, he All left right. All so, right. Rush is I, gone. I hope he can find a uh, he can find a place where he can go very quickly and uh, really enjoy. Brittany, mm-hmm. what's that place for you? Okay, I have so like many. I have so many places that are on um, the top of my list, but I think right now the immediate one would be Italy. My best friend just moved there permanently in the fall, and. I don't know, it'd be really nice to experience, you know, Italy. Yeah, and just see, like, some of the way that, you know, life is there. Maybe try some pizza, some gelato. You mean actual pizza? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, the actual one? Yeah. Did I hear that pizza wasn't actually invented in Italy? That would be an interesting conversation. Or maybe it's spaghetti. One of the two isn't actually native to Italy, I thought. I just found out today, talking to Brittany, I didn't know gelato was from Italy. Yeah. I mean, I knew it was this kind of cool ice cream. I didn't know it was from Italy. (laughs) Is that bad? 
No. Fortunato is still good. It doesn't matter where it originated. Of course. Who cares as long as it's good? Yeah. As long as you can have that. Yeah. It would just be so nice, you know, to... I don't know. I feel like Canada it has beautiful places, but I'm just like, ah, I want to go. I want to go to Venice and do the whole gondola. Ooh, yeah. We could do that in Vegas, Polly. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yes, they do have Britain's that. Britain's trying to actually save you some money. Yeah. yeah. Go to Vegas. Go experience it's Venice in Vegas, Polly. Come on. Yeah, go, go, to, go to Venice, Italy and try the actual gondola rides. That would be cool. Yeah. 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 Well, you're not allowed to change your plans. Now, Polly, that yeah. you have already flight, put them on the table. The flight and hotel are booked. Okay. So, unless there's another pandemic coming in the next couple of weeks, we're going. Oh, my gosh. No, don't even no, put that no. in the universe. Don't even don't. say this. I've said, I put that in the universe. Oops. Oh, yes. boy. <laughs> so, so, where do you want to go, Fazia? Oh, my God. You have no idea how long my list is for traveling. It's because I'm married to someone who really suffered traveling right so i have this long list of the mm-hmm. places that i want to travel i want to travel it with my husband mm-hmm. however he's the last one who would travel to any place that he doesn't know oh okay so i okay. think now it's the first time that I'm, I'm actually planning to go for a travel to turkey in uh, the summer with my sister and my brother-in-law Oh, nice. He's a, he's welcome to come along if he wants to. Mm-hmm. I'm still asking him to yeah. come with me. But even if he decides not to go, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to Turkey. Turkey is a place that I wanted to see from, I don't know, I think from the time when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been able to see. I have a lot of Turkish friends and there's a lot of history. And this idea about, you know, there's a country where Asia and Europe meet, right? It's so yeah. beautiful. And the history of Turkey as well. So let's mm-hmm. see if I'm, I'm pretty admin. Uh, I'm like, you know, I haven't booked it, but I'm really going to go to Turkey this time. Has anybody ever traveled by themselves? You yes. Guys, I never have. So something, it feels weird to me, but Brittany, you were telling me, and actually my wife has told me the same thing. You have to do it at least once. It's mm-hmm. an incredible experience. It you is. really learn a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So It is. Even yeah. a walk in solitude. We have a caller, so hang on. Um, Charlie is online. Yeah, hi. I think I'd love to go to Norway. Okay, oh, tell nice. us more. Pardon me? Tell us more why Norway is your place of choice. Well, I'm going to be the first to line up because I know Mr. Harry is going to win a Nobel Peace Prize for excellent, excellence in broadcasting. So I'm going to be the first one on board there. Okay. Polly, you wanted to Charlie say something? Charlie always manages to, to sneak my name into whatever his comment is. Thank you, Charlie. I love you, too. That's your specialty, Charlie, correct? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for calling. I've never been to Norway. Were, those two things were not connected at all. <laughs> That's how they were connected. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, should we talk about the second best place that you want to go? Oh. <sighs> I haven't I don't I haven't really a ranked list. I mean, Greece would be cool, mm-hmm. I yeah. think. Um I think it would be neat to see the pyramids in Egypt. Mm, yeah, mm. that'd be nice. It, it's it's I saw I think it was a blog post one time, something like 10 pictures of things that aren't how you thought they were and apparently the the pyramids are only a couple of kilometers if that outside 
of Cairo. Like, I pictured them in the middle of the desert, mm-hmm. nothing for 50 kilometers, but apparently they're right on the, the outer skirts of, of Cairo. I'll join but. you on that trip. <laughs> we have a number of callers now, so let's hear from Jerry first. Jerry, what's in the plan for you? Well, if I comment, there's probably a time where those pyramids were in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that's the true. Growth of communities. Yeah. Um, for me, it would be Iceland and the Yukon. I kind of like the northern portion, but uh, it's a, a drastic contrast. My better half, she's originally from Brazil, so she likes the south oh, wow. um, <laughs> and the heat. But, you know, there it, the way she travels, you know, we've been together now coming up to six years, so I'm still kind of getting used to the way she travels because she'll put an entire two weeks of life in a backpack and just go. Wow. That is amazing. Um, and she's very adventurous. She says, I don't grow roots, I grow wings. And there's a lot of truth to that. But um, but there are times where she wanted to go places I wasn't comfortable or a- able to. So I just said, look, honey, you go. So she's done a bunch of trips, you know, on her own. And she'll stay at hostels. She'll stay. She's very adventurous that way. So uh, I'm certainly not going to get in the way of that. But mm-hmm. um, no, Iceland, I love the Northern Lights. I've seen it a few times. They're just wow. stunning. Um, if that's something everybody's got to see once, um, but yeah, I, I like the North. Iceland is so beautiful. That's... My niece just traveled a, a few years ago, just before pandemic. She got married just before pandemic and she wanted to go see Iceland before uh, she gets married. So she went away. She went there with a couple of friends and really, really enjoyed that trip. And I enjoyed seeing those pictures. And here's the answer to Polly's question. Yes, people can go alone and yeah. travel and enjoy. Yeah, I know people do it. I've never done it. I think it would be, I, I will one day. Okay. Somewhere on okay, Brittany, remember that. Thank you, Jerry. Oh, you're very welcome. Let's move to Jason. Hi, Jason. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I really like to get down to North, uh, down to Carolina. There, I got a friend that does bow fishing tour, uh, tours and stuff like that that I want to go with. But, uh, but like Rush, though, I'm a second-class citizen in this country. I'm not allowed on a plane. I'm not allowed on a train or a boat. I'm not allowed to cross the border. So I'm a prisoner in Canada. Okay, Jason, let's not be that dramatic. You're not a prisoner in Canada. So how about we do one thing? In the meantime, that you're not able to travel outside of Canada, what would you like to see in Canada, within Canada? Ah. Oh, oh. So Jason is gone. Jason's gone. We have another caller. Mary, go ahead, Mary. Am I on there? Yes. Okay, I went to uh, Sri Lanka for three weeks on my own. That's amazing. Polly, you're taking notes. And I thought thought afterwards I've done it, I thought, how stupid can you be? But however, it was a time of reflection and meditation because I had to hire a driver, my own driver, um, for 21 days, and um, he, dro- he dropped me off at the hotel at 4 o'clock. I, a woman doesn't go out after that, and then he stays in his own places, and um, uh, it was very hard to contact my daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was worried. Um, I wasn't worried. I went through all over with these guys. <laughs> You know, you what you you reminded me of my own trip to Colombo, yeah. um, about twenty two years ago, and I went alone. 
um, it was actually for the interview for Canadian Immigration oh, okay. that I had to go to Colombo and I was there for mm-hmm. three days and oh. I went alone. Yeah. Um, we had sort of a friend of a friend of a friend yeah. who came to the airport and welcomed me and I stayed yes. with them and, you know, their family provided all sort of hospitality and Colombo was so beautiful. Oh, I didn't well, really get to see a lot beyond Colombo because I was there only for three days. I yeah. hope you can book your trip again and enjoy this time. Pardon? I hope you can book your trip again. Oh, I don't, no, no, I think I'm done with that. But 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 the thing was, um, I had trained, uh, I was a medical lab tech, and I had trained this fellow, and he was from uh, from Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what, what's it like there? And he says, oh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it was after the tsunami uh, of the, uh, two, was it 2000? It was the year after the tsunami. So tourists weren't going. And therefore, most of the hotels had hardly anybody in it, and so that was kind of lonely. But um, um, do I have regrets? At the time, I thought, hmm, I did something silly. But you know what? It was an experience to Mm -hmm. to really, it was, it was. Well, there's always learning, especially when we are traveling. We have to take a quick break very soon. Thank you for calling in. Um, Andre, you have one minute. Andre. Good afternoon, Miss Farzia. Good afternoon. Nice talking to you. Very nice talking to you, Andre, as well. Good. So um, for me, it's my in-laws. Every year um, we gave them, we said in the past show, your show with Mark, uh, that we got him a scratch ticket, not a scratch ticket, a giant scratch ticket with all the places from Europe. Mm-hmm. And they just pick a place every year to go. And then because of COVID, they haven't. So my father-in-law, his finger has been very itching to go somewhere. And like you said, uh, Producer Pauly, uh, the last trip they did was, I think, uh, something like Amsterdam, Italy, or something like that, and to Germany. Might as well make all one right and they had amazing but for me just to make it quick my trip that I would like to do because of COVID would go see the Rangers game because I think they only have six left at home <laughs> what can I say Polly well, what do you, you say go. that's there's, awesome there's lots, there's lots of tickets Rangers, available Andre. Andre lots of tickets thank you Kaya, <laughs> book your tickets so we're going to take a quick break listeners this is Kitchener Today on City News 570 Hello, welcome back. Let's continue to talk about our travel plans. We have two callers waiting. Mark, go ahead. Well, good afternoon, Fozzie. Um, good afternoon. First, I'd like to say um, I really like you. Um, we talked last time you were on the radio. You were hoping you didn't get fired, you said. So you did not get fired. You were back on the radio. I like it. And, um, you're so well-spoken and um, very compassionate. Thank um, you so much, I Mark. I really like that. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay, and tell us about our, your travel plans now. Okay. Um, back in the late 70s, I was in Key West, Florida. I actually drove there with a friend. And it, there's a giant long bridge, Fazio, that takes you right to Key West, Florida, the tip of Florida. And um, I'd really like to do that again. 
That would be amazing. Okay, I haven't been to Florida, Florida at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was amazing. It was a great experience. Um, yes, I was very young then, but I think I'd appreciate even more now. Well, I hope you can do it now. Okay. Thank you, Fonzia. You're welcome, Mark. Yeah, Key West would be cool. One of my mm-hmm. bucket list items is to go to Key West, Florida for New Year's Eve. Because instead of dropping a ball like they do in Times Square, they drop a drag queen in a large shoe. I think that would be fun. Wow. The drag queen drop. Maybe 20, you will welcome 2023 (laughs) in Key West. Maybe I will, yeah. (laughs) Hugh, you're on on now. Hi, how are you, Fonzie? Good. How are you? Good. And say hi to uh, Polly. He's listening. I'm right here. Okay. I'd like to go to France. Oh, nice. You know, Paris, I've always well, wanted yeah. to visit the uh, Vimy Ridge Memorial, too. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, we hope you get there one day, Hugh. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, uh, photos of the Vimy Ridge Memorial, but it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have seen photos mm-hmm. for sure. It's, it's, uh, it's a place to visit to remember what uh, we should never do again. Exactly. And the sacrifices of of uh, our of of people, but it's happening in the Ukraine. Yes, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. so sad. Only if we can learn from history and stop this madness, right? Well, humans never seem to learn, do mm-hmm. they? Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you can get your you can have your wish come true, and you can travel to France uh, this year. Hugh, thank you for calling in. Okay, have a good day. You too. So, Brittany. Yeah. What are you thinking now? Um, I'm not, nothing in particular. I think, um, like, going back to that talking about um, uh, traveling alone, I did it once. And, I mean, I didn't go anywhere exotic by any means. I traveled to B.C. by myself. But mm-hmm. it was Very in B.C. Best. It's uh, so Vancouver. beautiful. Oops, so Vancouver beautiful. and Kelowna. And it was just the most amazing experience. It's like, so funny. My wife tra- also traveled to Vancouver by herself. Oh, yeah? Were you two together? Maybe. <laughs> You'll never know, It was about 20 know, years ago. <laughs> You'll never know. <laughs> Canada is so beautiful. It like, is. Yeah. I came to Canada as an adult, and I have not seen really most of Canada. I, this is on my bucket list, not only to travel to international sites, but to be able to see even Banff. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to Banff. Like, you know, it's beautiful. Half of I my family, been. they've been there, but not me. You mm-hmm. know why? Because I had not thought carefully when I was getting married. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was an arranged marriage. And I forgot to yeah. ask the question about whether you like traveling or yeah. not. Right. Well, you know what? Leave your partner at home and take the trip yourself. It's hard. I've it's always hard. wanted to go out east, like Halifax, mm-hmm. like Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. That's also on my very short list of places yeah. to go. I'm so beautiful. I've been out east a couple of times and... Like, life is just so different there. Like, it's just so relaxing. Slower pace. Yeah. Yeah. Like, everybody's just so calm and friendly. And, like, I don't know, like, being here and close to the GTA and then going to a place like Vancouver, like, everything's very fast-paced. And then you go out east and... Like people are and just the nature. calm, you know? Yeah. And nature as well, right? Like mm-hmm. I remember seeing these uh, Newfoundland tourism uh, ads when I was new to Canada. And that water, seeing mm-hmm. that beautiful water was mm-hmm. just so calming. And I just wanted to be in that place mm-hmm. in no time. 
वी हैव It's 228. Is it really? I it can't believe by. this. Wow. We're just going to end this segment over here. We'll take a break for news. This is Kitchener today on City News 570. Welcome back listeners as you just heard it's our regular tech spotlight segment on Tuesdays we have Eric Blondeel founder of Samus Insurance with us welcome Eric Hi thanks so much for for having me on the program I really appreciate it You're welcome you don't know how much I'm looking forward to learning more about uh, your uh, your venture So let me give a bit of a background uh, to Eric and uh, his venture for our listeners before we start asking questions from Eric. Um so while Eric was waiting for surgery in 2020, um he actually realized that he did not have life insurance and the stress and anxiety of that led him to create Samos Insurance with the goal to make insurance options available to people when they find themselves in his situation. That is just one amazing thing to do. Tell us more yeah. about um you know the beginning of your venture, what was going through your mind when when you were in that situation. Of course, yeah, I was uh I was nervous. Uh I'd never I never had a, a major surgery before. I was going to be under full general anesthetic and uh, uh I you know about a third of canadians have have no life insurance and find themselves in a similar situation to mine i had just left my previous company and that's why i i didn't have any coverage and yeah you know, if you're going uh, if you're if you're traveling to cuba uh, you probably want to get travel insurance mm-hmm. it just clicked in my mind that if you're having uh, elective surgery or a planned surgery uh there should be uh there should be insurance coverage that's uh similarly available that a person can pick up easily and affordably to cover the period of time that they are going to be in the hospital having this procedure and that wasn't the case for canadians correct correct yeah so you came up with this idea did it happen right when you were still in the hospital later on how did you how did you sort of develop this idea i know that you were seeing a need at that time what happened after that uh-huh. yeah i uh, i was brainstorming a little bit in the hospital uh i just kind of had a, a moment of uh, realizing like where there is risk uh there's usually mitigation in the form of insurance i i actually did try to buy this product mm-hmm. uh while i was gowned up and and waiting on the table i i assumed that a product like this already existed and i was uh you know chagrined to to find out that it wasn't mm-hmm. it seemed like uh something that should be available to canadians uh waterloo is uh it's a big startup uh in tech town we all know that uh but it's also a, a major insurance town mm-hmm. and uh Uh I was lucky enough to be connected to my my now co-founder uh Leon Panambulam mm-hmm. who's a a 25 year uh insurance veteran from the Waterloo ecosystem as well as several uh tech companies in town and we started taking uh lots of walks uh, that winter in mm-hmm. 2020 uh and uh building out the idea of how a product like this could and should be 
available to to Canadians uh, when they are are facing uh, these these scary situations that all of us face. Actually, uh, uh, surgery is is far more prevalent than I had even realized. Uh, the average person requires nine surgeries in their lifetime. That is and, information for me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that uh, something like this is not available, um, or for that matter, um, you know, subsequently learned that there. Surgery is often an exclusion uh, in in certain conventional insurance policies. Correct. Same uh, so, is uh, for pregnancy. So we we wanted to create something that would fill this gap uh, mm-hmm. for Canadians uh, when they are are facing these circumstances. That's amazing. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your product itself? Actually, not a little bit. Take your time. Help listeners understand what do you offer. Absolutely. Uh, so we are covering from admission until discharge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is an accidental death product. So if you are having a, a planned surgery, uh, you can go to um, Samos, S-A-M-O-S dot insure, uh, click get a quote, and uh, we cover a majority of elective and planned uh, surgical procedures uh, at this point. And uh, it, the product is only based on uh, a person's age and the procedure they're having. Now, we're we're super lucky uh, in Canada to have such a, a great healthcare system, and I, I want to stress that my uh, my surgical team uh, was was terrific, and I'm I'm so proud uh, uh, that in this country we have access to this. Uh, but obviously, uh, with with any procedure, there are are risks, and we wanted to to make sure that this was available to provide peace of mind to Canadians uh, that are, are in these circumstances to make sure that their their loved ones would be okay. Uh, so you can just go to samos.insure, uh, click get a quote, um, provide a bit of information about the procedure that you're having and your age. And the cost of uh, this product is, uh, it's, it's on the order of about $100, and you can purchase up to $100,000 of coverage. So $100 one flat cost? Uh, the price does change depending on the procedure and mm-hmm. your age, but that on average, sense. it's about that. About $100. That is great, Eric. And uh, I would like to also invite our listeners, if you have any questions for Eric about his product, feel free to call in 519-570-2545, 1-800-570-5715, toll free, and a star 570 on cell phone. Eric, tell us about why Waterloo Region? Why did you choose Waterloo Region to launch your uh, venture? Absolutely. Um, and, and I had uh, previously done a startup in Waterloo Region. I, I believe strongly in the, the power of, of our tech ecosystem to, to launch companies. Uh, and at the same time, um, the the strength of uh, insurance professionals and and talented individuals um, that I knew I could uh, build an organization around. I, I knew that Waterloo was a terrific nexus of, of these two elements uh, that would make a, a, a great place for us to, to build Samos. That is great to hear. So if I ask you to um, identify, let's say, two supports or two uh, things that was that were in place in Waterloo region that really helped you launch your startup this startup here in in Waterloo region what would they be 
Uh, absolutely. I, uh, my, my first company, we had uh, built that through the Velocity and uh, Velocity Incubator uh, in Kitchener. Mm-hmm. Uh, and early on, I went back to uh, Velocity and I, I said, I've, I have a new startup. And they, op- they welcomed me back with uh, open arms and, and even uh, invested in uh, our, our startup uh, as part of uh, as part of their Velocity Fund, which I encourage uh, anybody thinking about doing a startup to uh, to visit uh, the programs available through Velocity, uh, as well as uh, um, Catalyst uh, uh, in, uh, in Kitchener. Uh, mm-hmm. Catalyst uh, Commons is where we uh, subsequently were able to acquire some space to, to work out of uh, that uh, Leon and I could, could collaborate uh, and, and work with and uh, a, a great thank you to uh, the Catalyst team for uh, supporting us as well. That's amazing to hear. It's really amazing to hear about Waterloo Region. Uh, uh, it's very strong tech sector and all of the supports that have been in place uh, for new startups like you. But yours doesn't look like that new anymore. Well, it's interesting, right? It's 2020. What has been the tra- trajectory for your startup um, so far? Admittedly, it was uh, it was just at the end of 2020 that I, I had oh. that surgery. So it's it's been about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been uh, quite fortunate to. Uh, I would say one of the most challenging aspects uh, for any insurance startup is to uh, um, is to uh, navigate the uh, regulatory um, aspects of, of getting to market, and we are now available in Ontario. So that's, uh, that's been tremendous on, on our side uh, to be able to do that within one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are also uh, part of a, a program in based out of California called uh, Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're doing uh, Demo Day in seven days. So that's, uh, uh, that's a pretty exciting accomplishment for us as well. So do you have plans to expand? Uh, we certainly expand. Uh, we we certainly plan to uh, hire more personnel and uh, expand this product product offering, um, as well as beyond uh, Canada. Beyond Canada, uh, correct? Yeah, that's great. It's amazing. So Ontario is down. Now you're looking at other provinces. Correct. That's that's great. What is? Let's talk about uh, you know that one moment of pride big moment of pride that you have had so far in uh, in this journey yeah um i would say uh, the the big moment of pride has uh, has been um well probably uh you know taking this from from a concept uh knowing that uh, or or realizing i should say that there is a gap in in this marketplace mm-hmm. um building a policy and then um, actually making it available to Canadians uh, and, and putting it uh, in um, the hands of, of people who are were, were in the exact same circumstances as mine, uh, you know, themselves. Uh, surgery, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we all commonly uh, know about, but it's not necessarily something that we've all experienced personally. We probably had a loved one who uh, has, has gone in for a procedure and uh, being able to uh, create something that uh, you know holistically is is going to uh, um, provide some comfort, provide some um, trust that uh, that regardless of of the outcome um, that things are going to be okay. Uh, that's very important to us, and so um, 
we've been, we've had a lot of pride and, and Leon uh, he talks a lot about uh, you know insurance as a as a product it's it, it actually has a very you know noble um, underpinning it's it's really meant to be there to take care of people when they need it most and we take that to heart at Samos we wanted to build something that would be there for you uh, if if uh, if things go sideways definitely what's behind your name i mean not uh, your personal name your business name samos the the business name uh that that's a, a bit of a funny story uh well, we, had, we would uh, like to hear some funny stories today um i have a uh, i have a this this beautiful uh, uh dog at home it's a, a samoid um and uh i had taken some early inspiration and uh, thought about uh trying to name the product uh sammy um but uh internet domains being what they are um that uh, that that naming exercise sort of led towards uh, samos which uh we subsequently learned is actually the the birthplace of uh, pythagoras and uh, and we're all big math nerds uh, <laughs> having uh, done uh, a lot of the statistics and modeling uh, for this and uh, and really enjoying the uh, the mathematical aspects and uh, balancing act of uh, of insurance and and figuring out uh, how to you know, balance risk against outcomes, and it all felt right um, in the end to uh, to call the company Samos and to, to draw from that. Very creative indeed, um, Eric. If uh, you can talk about a few challenges that you have overcome along the way, of course. Uh, I mean, I would say that uh, one of the interesting things. Has definitely been building a startup during uh, COVID. I know that uh, you know we've all struggled through this pandemic in different ways and and tried to find uh, ways to to overcome the the limitations of that. Uh, doing a a startup and uh, you know various aspects of, of fundraising um, or or anything you know mm-hmm. collaborative um, uh, in in the era of uh, of COVID has been uh, a real challenge uh, and uh, a new experience for all of us. Uh, and, and I would say that uh, uh, that was that has been a major challenge, of course, uh, to you know, build a team. But I think we're we're stronger for it. Um, we're uh, we're running a, a remote team. We have uh, contributors in Guadalajara and Montreal, mm-hmm. and uh, I I think it's uh, it, it makes us a stronger uh, workforce at the end of the day. Um, our our third uh, co-founder, uh, Matt Egerton, uh, he was based out of San Francisco when he joined us. And uh, so I, I think that uh, it's, it's been interesting to build an organization um, in this era and to, to, to build good solutions so that we can work effectively together. Um, I'm very proud of, of our team. Definitely, definitely. I, I hear, um, I call this internet wisdom. I, I remember reading on the internet about the symbol for danger or risk um, and opportunity is the same in uh, traditional Chinese language. I don't know if this is true or not, but this idea that every challenge presents an opportunity and, and that opportunity we might not be able to see um, right away, but but uh, this is, the, that opportunity is there. And, and people like you, there are a lot of people who see that opportunity. Not that we want the COVID to stay here any longer for people to find more opportunities, but uh, definitely this was one good thing about uh, using more virtual online technology that now our work can be more global, more sort of, uh, uh, broader than uh, restricted by our geographical area, definitely. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. Eric, we're going to be taking a break very soon. But before we take the break, let's say I'm the person who is in need of your product. What do I do? I'm like, uh, where, at what time in my journey I'd start looking for it? Where do I find you? Why would I choose you? Absolutely. Uh, if, if you have a, a scheduled uh, elective surgery, uh, so, you know, if, if you've uh, met with a, a surgeon and been given uh, a timeline, uh, and, and this can be a little bit of a, a challenge, especially uh, with COVID, my own surgery had been delayed for, mm-hmm. uh, I think, six months to a year um, before I was able to have it. Um, but uh, if, if, you've, uh, if you know that you are going to be having uh, the surgery, um, even if you haven't necessarily received uh, the, the date, um, but you know what your surgery is, uh, you can go to samos.insure, click get a quote, uh, and uh, enter some very um, minimal information. I should point out that we do not have medical exclusions as part of this product. If you are having, uh, if you are having one of our eligible procedures and you are between the ages of 20 to 69, you are, you are eligible and approved to receive this product. Uh, and we'll collect some basic information just so we can fill out the actual policy documents, uh, send it to you, and um, you can pay online and it's it's very simple and, and straightforward um, we want this to be accessible and affordable and uh, as long as uh, you're you are doing it 48 hours ahead of time of your actual surgery then that's that's everything that you need um, just go to samos.insure and click get a quote that short sounds easy to do we're going to take a quick commercial break now. We'll be back soon. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Hey, with your guest host, Fazia Mazhar. This is our time for Tech Spotlight, and I have Eric Blondiel, founder of Sam- Samos Insurance, on call to talk more about um, the Samos, into, uh, Samos uh, insurance, the great idea that turned into a project which seems to be doing very well. Welcome back, Eric. Hi, hi. Great to, have, great to be here. Great. So let's talk about future. What are you hoping or what are your dreams for the future? Right. Uh, so right now, our, our product coverage is for, as I had said, uh, about a majority of of elective planned procedures uh, uh, in the future, we would actually like to cover all mm-hmm. elective procedures as well as uh, you know emergency and acute procedures. There's lots of circumstances where we find ourselves needing to have a procedure that was not planned and we didn't have a lot of time leading mm-hmm. up to it. And we want to make sure that we're available when people need us, and and that is that's the long-term dream. As well as, uh, you know, currently this is uh, this is an accidental death product. If if uh, between admission and discharge, uh, we'd like to um, expand the timeline of that coverage, as well as uh, um, include other aspects of coverage related to surgery. I, I know that when I had had my procedure, uh, I was quite surprised um, at 
the recovery process and how long it took. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was starting a new job uh, shortly after, and I uh, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't lift my arms uh, afterwards, um, and uh, I had to I had to push back my start date. And I think that a lot of Canadians. Uh, when they are in these circumstances, they they do their best to to research and be informed about uh, uh, what it's going to be like. But it's easy to to not realize um, uh, some of the challenges that you're going to face. I know that uh, um, I know that uh, I, ha- I had a, another good friend who had a, a hip surgery, and uh, you know something as simple as uh, going to the bathroom uh, once you get home. It's a it's a real challenge, and we want to to. F- to be part of uh, people's journey uh, through these experiences and make sure that uh, um, that they're they're coming out the other side as as healthy as possible. That's amazing, and uh, I think I forgot to ask this question: Who else are you partnering with in terms of businesses? Do you have partnerships with uh, the the insurance companies? Who else are you partnering with? We do have a we do have a, a partner uh, that we're um, writing our our insurance policies with, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, we we are looking to structure this to be available um, through um, people's uh, group e- employment benefits that they're receiving. So you don't necessarily have to think about buying this ahead of your surgery if it's uh, just part of your existing employment benefits. Uh, that makes quite a bit uh, easier for everybody to have this coverage. Uh, so we're, we're putting a lot of work into uh, outreach. Um, similarly, we, we also want to do our best to, to partner with uh, uh, physicians and, and the various people in the ecosystem of surgery and make sure that uh, we're another tool in the toolbox to, uh, to be a, a holistic solution for patient well-being uh, and make sure that uh, Uh, we can be another um, checkbox to help de-stress people as they're heading into um, what is ultimately a fairly nerve-wracking situation for for Canadians. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for your great work. Listen, I wish you all the success in your startup, not only because it's your startup, but also because it's such a needed service, such a needed uh, thing for uh, Canadians to have. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on this show. Listeners, it's time to close out our show. Uh, we'll take a news break for news at 3 p.m. See you next week. Actually, no, talk to you next week.